0: Well good morning, it's good to be back, thanks for my weekend off last weekend, it was a pleasure, (laughs) but it's good to see your faces from up here again. You can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we are in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. In this opening section of John's gospel, forms part of the birth announcement of John. A lot of people say that only Matthew, Matthew and Luke have a birth, birth announcement, but this is it in John. It says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It speaks of the coming of Christ into a dark world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this light, as John goes on to report, was the light of the glory of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the light of the glory of God, and that is what we anticipate during this season as we approach Christmas morning. And it is also a very helpful introduction to our passage here this morning. So with this in mind, let's read together from Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18. This is the Word of God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked With me, Let's pray. Father, grant us now this morning as we approach this uh, season, the birth of Christ, celebration of that here next Saturday morning, that we may ponder the light that came into the world and shone in the darkness and now continues to shine through your church. To the glory of God, we pray. Amen. So the Christmas season is a special time of year. It's one of my favorite times, it's even magical, you know, when one can say and use that word appropriately, I think. But I want you to picture Christmas without lights. No lights, no trees, no celebrations. Imagine a Christmas season without that. Well, for six years, from 1929 to 1936, Christmas festivals, including lights and a tree, were abolished in the Soviet Union. Once had plenty of lights, plenty of celebrations. None. It was repurposed in 1936, but this time as a new celebration. And why did they repurpose it? Because obviously that's a reprieve from the cold and the dark during this period of winter. Um, and the light itself gives people hope, right? It pictures hope, light, and darkness. And that is exactly what we celebrate here during this period of Advent. We celebrate this season of light and darkness, a picture of hope to the world. Now, in our passage here this morning, Paul will argue that the world without the church is like Christmas without lights. Now, of course, that's not the metaphor that Paul uses. At the time, he did not have Christmas lights. There was no celebration such as we have today. But the metaphor is a striking example of the point Paul is going to make in this passage. This morning, we will conclude the section, as we began in 1 verse 27, with this first imperative. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he concludes the section here with the fifth and final imperative of this larger section in 2 verse 14. Do all things without grumbling." Or disputing. But rather than tell the church what to do, he will now tell them why they should do it. Now, he has already laid out what they should do from verses 1 verse 27 to 2 verse 14, urging them to do their duty as heavenly citizens without grumbling or disputing. But now he's going to say why they should do that. And while we do find our final imperative in verse 14 this morning, the text is really governed by verses 15 to 17. Or in other words, Paul is going to motivate their obedience by giving them their purpose, and he is going to do that by showing them that they are more than citizens. They are more than employees, more than slaves. They are children of God. And as God's children, they are to reflect the light of His glory in the world, now the title for the sermon is "Rejoicing in Sacrificial Obedience," and we will consider the section in the three headings, which, as usual, is an argument that I will present. First point: When Christians live as obedient children of God. Point two: We shine the light of God's glory into a dark world. Point three: And live sacrificially for the furtherance. Of the gospel. So when Christians live as obedient children of God, we shine the light of God's glory into a dark world and live, we can even say, by living sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel. All right, let's look at the first of these. When Christians live as obedient children of God. Now, Paul follows this call from obedience from verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that's the context here. He's calling the church to obedience in this very final section. And then here with his final imperative in verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, we noted two weeks ago that this imperative can be seen as part of the driving imperative found in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Two weeks ago, that's what we looked at, and we recognized that, that is like a job description given to Christians, right? It's not a way that you earn your salvation, it's not how you further your salvation, it is the way that you have received salvation and now you have a job to do. It is an employer giving an employer a task and saying, hey, go and see this job through. So we are to get on with our jobs and do it. That's the expectation, that's the, the, the point that Paul is making there. And we are to do so without grumbling and disputing, which is what that text leads into here. And so the first part of my argument is said like this. When Christians live as obedient children of God... And I make this my first point because we're going to see how this flows from that mandate as Christians, the job that we are to do, and flows into what that means for us as being children. We're not just employees, but we are actually children. We have a relationship towards God that that deserves our obedience towards Him. And so let's unpack this section and see how it encourages our obedience uh, to God as children. Now, this section begins with imperative. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a command. It's an imperative. And then he gives a purpose clause. That is a little word there that's really important. You can say that. You can translate it so that, in order that. It's a purpose clause. He's going to give you a purpose for the, the charge, the command, the obedience. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That's the purpose. Now, this is a really interesting verse. Paul connects the absence of grumbling or disputing among the church community, as translated here in the ESV, with being blameless and innocent and without blemish. The language of a sacrifice. Now, we need to stop and ask ourselves, why or how? What does Paul mean by grumbling and disputing that is so crucial to the identity of us as children of God? And furthermore, how would our disobedience to this command disrupt our witness within the world in which we live?
1: Now we're going to look at that.
0: We must understand that Paul's use of the word grumbling, which can also be translated in some translations as murmuring, or, you know, arguing, has two situations in mind. The first that we looked at two weeks ago is a slave-master context that the Philippians would have been well aware of. Here it is like a slave that murmurs under his breath or grumbles under his breath when he's given an instruction by his master. And we are not to be like slaves or, or employees in our context that murmur under our breaths when we get a job by employers to do and fulfill I don't know but yo, I'm a grumbler, you know, I, I grumble, you know. You give a heavy, heavy job and, you know, you can mutter and grumble on your breast. And Paul is saying, Christians ought not to be like that. That's the first sense, and we looked at that two weeks ago. But here, there is a second sense in which he sees it. And this week he adds the phrase, children of God, which brings us into the Old Testament situation. So, he says we should not be grumbling or murmuring under our breaths, but we should be children of God. And that brings us into the situation of Paul's own background as a Jew or as the Israelites, and especially back at the wilderness wanderings in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and that whole section when they came out of Egypt. Why does it bring us back? Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament... This word is used throughout those books for Israel grumbling against God. Exodus 15 verse 24, they grumbled when they didn't have any water. Exodus 16 verse 2, they grumbled when they didn't have any food. Numbers 14, they grumbled at the sight of those people. In, uh, in, the, in the promised land and the size of them that God would not deliver them. They grumbled. I mean, if we get the sense when we read through those books, the Israelites are always grumbling about something. Grumble, 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 grumble. I don't know if you've ever had someone work for you that grumbles a lot. Or perhaps parents will recognize this with their own children that when they go through this phase of grumbling kids how discouraging it can be. But here in the context of Israel, it is an act of rebellion. And Paul is going to bring this out as a very stern warning to the church that grumbling against, and in the context of Exodus, is grumbling against Moses and Aaron, is actually an act of rebellion against God himself, which culminates... In the Exodus chapter 32 idolatry, golden calf idolatry scene, the grumbling indicates their heart condition. And this is exactly why Paul connects blamelessness and innocence and without blemish here in this text with their grumbling. Because the Israelites under that situation, were not innocent, they were not blameless, and they were not without blemish. Their grumbling revealed that they themselves were still idolaters in their heart. And that's a very stern warning to these people. And Philippa, who themselves had been saved from idolatry. So Paul's concern is about our hearts, And what grumbling in the context of the church community does within ourselves and what's going on within there, as well as what that displays to the world. Because we must understand now, we're not Israel in the wilderness where there's desert all around, and we are now in the context of other communities as the church, and people are watching us. And this was Moses' concern in the Old Covenant as well. What would the nation say if they saw? In the same way, Paul is connecting this and thinking what is the watching world going to say if they see the people of God within whom God is working, is what the text says in verse 13 to the will and to work for his own good pleasure, if these people claim that God is at work amongst us and the redemption that he's provided is brought into this great salvation, if we act no differently to the world, what do people think? And so Paul's concern is the living church before a watching world. The glory of God. The same concern that Moses had. You see, friends, when the church starts looking like some of these talk shows, like the Jerry Springer show, (laughs) Dr. Phil, it communicates a community that is not different from the culture, or at times even worse than the culture. It doesn't reflect a community where God Himself is at work. And Paul here is contrast in the Christian community with this crooked and twisted generation in Philippi, which at its root was rooted in Roman rhetoric, and there was much debate and arguing. There was much grumbling by slaves. There was just this community itself, which reflected the Jerry Springer show. Paul's going to say this should
1: not be so in the church.
0: Now, these characteristics of blamelessness and innocence and without blemish are characteristics that reflect the work of the Holy Spirit. And it are characteristics of what Paul's going to point out is those who are adopted into the family of God as children. Now, what does it mean, blamelessness and innocence and without blemish? Does that mean that we are perfect? Well, this is the language of sacrifice, right? It goes back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, that they are to put an animal upon the altar without blemish. And then, of course, the people themselves are to be charged with blamelessness and to have innocence, be like innocent children in the crooked world. Paul is using those kinds of languages of the Old Testament, of Israel themselves, as characteristics of what it looks like when God is at work in a community. Now, it does not mean that individual Christians are going to be perfect Remember, it's contrasting it to the culture. For example, when you go back to the account of Noah, Noah was blameless among the people of his time. Now, Noah's time was really bad. And so what does blamelessness look like among the people of his time? Was he perfect? No, he needed a sacrifice, he needed Jesus, he is full of sin. But he himself was seen to stand out from among all of the people of his community that this is a person who is a friend of God. So these marks reflect those among whom God is at work. You look different. There's something about you that's appealing, that attracts, that draws people. Even if they charge you with all sorts of wrong, they've got to recognize that you do good. Jesus says, let your light shine before all men so that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. The church is to be the representation of heaven on earth. And as a result of that, we're going to look different to the culture. And as our light shines by loving one another, in what Paul says in the imperative there in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, By doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and humility, count others more significant than themselves. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Living that mandate, and then back to chapter 1, verse 27, striving side by side, firm in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. When we are doing that, and we're doing that without grumbling and disputing, we then look like perfect people in a dark and crooked world. We shine
1: as lights.
0: And this is the identity of the children of God. So my first point is, when Christians live as obedient children of God, point two, we shine the light of God's glory into a dark world. We shine the light of God's glory into a dark world. Friends, the light of the gospel shines clearly against the backdrop of darkness and especially the darkness of the present world and its systems. The worse society becomes, the clearer the gospel shines. And this is why John wrote, the light shines in the darkness. Now the birth announcement of Jesus was light coming into the dark world. But the coming of Jesus is... Different to our reflecting the light, right? The coming of Jesus himself was the brightness of God's glory, revealing the depths and depravity in the hearts of human beings. It was like the sun blazing down on the earth and that you cannot even look upon it. This is what Jesus is. He exudes the full glory of God. We are like the moon. We reflect, like Moses. Remember last week in the sermon was so great, the Old Testament background to things I've been saying, when Moses went up and met with God, he came down and he shone the glory of God off his face, and even so that he had to cover it, that was so bright. But it wasn't the brightness of God's glory. It was a reflection of that. Now, Paul is going to say that the church has ever-increasing glorious Christians. Unlike Moses, which glory fades, we in the gospel, we with the Holy Spirit, has an ever-increasing glory, and that's going to continue to grow and grow and grow for eternity. We are going to continue to grow in the shining of the glory. But in the present world, what it looks like is, in this crooked and perverse world in which we live, it looks like people that hold out little Christmas lights. That's what the individual churches are. If you can see the church from the vantage point of heaven, it might look like we do at Christmas time, right? Lights.
1: And there's the darkness. And it's beautiful. Sometimes from our particular vantage point, it doesn't look that pretty. But you know what? In God's eternal
0: purposes... And his plan of redemption it is the display of his glory and his wisdom to the whole heavens and to all peoples. And one day everyone will look on at this mystery and see the beauty of God's redemption and the majesty of his glory and his plan for the church.
1: Now, what does the light
0: do? John communicates with us, and after that famous passage, John chapter 16, 3 verse 16, that for so God so loved the world, that he sent his only Son, whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Beautiful passage. But in 3 verse 19, we read this statement, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then John continues in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the world in its darkness loves darkness. They want to get away with it. It's the Soviet Union, right? We don't want Christmas celebrations because it points to a reality that we don't agree with in our atheistic presuppositions. We want to get rid of those thoughts, and then we'll repurpose it later on and turn it into a new celebration, um, a very worldly celebration. But it's that we love the darkness. And you know what happened to the Soviet Union? They celebrate Christmas. Now 90,90. it didn't work, didn't last. It collapsed. And that is like every single individual person. In fact, all of us are guilty of that. We love the darkness until the light shines and exposes the evil intentions of our hearts. And when it does that, it brings the weight of our sin upon us. And guess what? Then we look to Christ. We look for hope. And when we do that, His light shines into us by His Holy Spirit, and it shines out from us. This is why, if you could put on your spiritual lenses, what you would see in Christians, you know, you could put on those spiritual sunglasses, like, right, and it will reveal to you, every single true believer, you will see the Spirit, the light of God shining in this dark world.
1: Now, Paul's contention here in Philippians is that the church is a medium through which God continues to shine the light of His truth. Jesus
0: is the brightness of God's glory. He's like the sun. But the church is like these Christmas lights flickering in the dark world. Sometimes it's a little fainter than other times. sometimes it's a big, brighter light. But you know what? A small little light in a dark world shines. You could see it from miles away. Light is light. <laughs> and together against the backdrop of a dark world, we shine collectively. All individual churches that preach the gospel like a beautiful display of God's glory in this world. This is the purpose of the church and the imagery that Paul is trying to convey. Now the Old Testament background to this imagery is the promise to Abraham in Genesis twelve, fifteen, and 17 that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And furthermore, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, where Daniel writes, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. This is the picture that we have in the Old Testament, that God has promised that there will be a people that will reflect His glory and shine us into the dark world. And Daniel says that that's fulfilled. That's going to be point forward to that eschatological period where people are divided, and we will always shine like stars. But in the present here in the gospel, that is us as church, shining still in the present, the darkness into men, and giving the light so that we will say, this is the gospel, come to Christ, be reconciled to God this is our job,
1: our mandate.
0: And so Paul's concern is that the church is to shine the glory of God in the gospel to a dying and perishing world. That is what it means if we go back to 1 verse 27, that they are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel.
1: Paul is presenting them here with a picture
0: to enable their perseverance. <laughs> He's showing that the church is to display the present, in the present the beauty of the glory of the gospel of God. And it does so through living lives of obedience to God's purposes and His will in this world. It is grasping this fact that the mandate we are given to further this gospel, and even at great cost to ourselves, even at the cost of our lives, is so easily fulfilled. Because this is where Paul's going in this passage. And this is exactly what he spoke of in chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When the local church lives lives that is worthy of the gospel... It lives self-sacrificial and devoted lives to the cause of the gospel that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather works out its salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in the community to will and to work for His good pleasure. And when a church draws this vision, this purpose, this mandate, it will do all things without grumbling or disputing and so shine as light's in the world.
1: This is the mandate that we have been given, church. How do we
0: do it? Well, Paul writes in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. See that phrase, there? holding fast to the word of life. Here's the key to a persevering church. That it holds fast to the word of life. What does Paul mean here? Well, the phrase can be read in two ways in the original. It can be either read as holding fast to the word of life In other words, the church must cling for dear life to God's word, cling to the gospel. The church must keep this central. The church must preach it. The church must live it. The church must love one another through it. The word is to be the grounds upon which we build all things, whether it be our evangelism programs or whether it be our outreach, or whether it be our pulpit ministries, the word is to be central. That's the the Reformation cry. So it could be that. Hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel.
1: And it could also be read as holding out the word of life. (laughs) Holding out
0: the gospel. And Paul's continuing phrase, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Could bolster both of those. Hold fast, cling to the gospel so that it will be shown that I did not run in vain. Or hold out the word and let the gospel continue so that it will be shown that I did not run in vain so that the church continues. So which one is it? Well, once again, I say it's both and, not an other or. We don't have to pick here. Sometimes Paul has these ambigu- ambiguities in order to bring across both meanings and intentions. In Paul's life, in the context of the letter, it is both. The church is to hold fast dear to the word and to the gospel, and the church is to hold at the gospel. This is going to become the basis for his exhortation in chapter 3, that the church should hold fast to the gospel, not be giving in to false teaching, needs to hold fast to what they've been taught and given, and not think that the Jewish false, te- false teachers has got the truth. They must hold to the truth in the gospel and cling to it for dear life, or else it will be lost in false teaching. But he also intends that they should hold out the word of life, something which, which he addresses in chapter 1, verse 27. And now he's wrapping up in this section. You see, Paul's concern is that the church holds firm to the gospel as they live in a hostile culture, are loving one another through difficult disputes, and face the onslaught of false teachers that are ravaging the church in this area, and in so doing, holds out the gospel to the world. This
1: is is what it looks like when a church has God at work in them. This is what a community of faith looks like. And when Christians live in this manner,
0: allowing the word to penetrate our hearts and humble us, because that's what the word does, and humbling us, turn ourselves to one another
1: in love, and honor
0: Christ, glorify Him above all things, then that church is shining the gospel of the glory of God
1: in a dark world.
0: Let's look at our final point. In order to do this, when Christians live as obedient children of God, we shine the light of God's glory in a dark world and live sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel. And live sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel. In this last section, as Paul concludes, he turns, this, he turns to his own situation here in prison and once again shows his fatherly care and concern for this local church. Paul's like a father, you know, just loves his church, just wants him to persevere and to get there, urging them on. Now, we've got a lot to learn from this passage. Since Paul, in chapter 3, verse 17, will tell the church, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have seen in us. So when Paul writes these things over here, he's reflecting on his own situation, we've got to look at that. Because we've got to imitate this. So Paul wants a Philippian church here to imitate him, and we catch a glimpse of the example that Paul sets for us. The first sense of Paul's example we see here is his concern for this local church to persevere in verse 16. Here he points to the day of Christ, or in other words, the final day of judgment, when all people will stand before Jesus and give an account of their lives. All people. The scriptures clearly teach that all people will give an account before God in Christ, including believers. There are many examples I can point to in scripture. For example, the parable of the talents. People have been given, distributed various talents or gifts or abilities or financial. And what they've done with that will be accounted for at the end of the day. But some of the clearest passages are those cited in Paul himself. For example, Romans 14 verse 12. So then each of us, referring to the church, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us. You all will stand individually before Christ as individuals. So you've got to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you will stand as an individual for what you've done. There's a strong corporate element in all of these passages the church be united, but you're responsible as an individual for how you live that act. And you will give an account. So once again, we are back to the image we looked at it two weeks ago in chapter 2 verse 12 to 13 that we have a mandate and we have to see it through and you will be held account for that mandate it's your responsibility but here in this passage Paul is referring to the mandate saying so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I, that I did not run in vain or labour in vain the question is some people will say this skeptics is Paul more concerned about himself or is he genuinely concerned about the church? See, here he's saying, you know, do this so that I will be proud on the day of Jesus. Is he more concerned about himself? Is that why
1: he's building the church?
0: Now, it may seem to us that the only reason Paul is doing all of this is to get a pat on his back on the last day. Alright? Does he have selfish motivations? Especially when he uses the language of being proud which can be literally translated, that I may boast. Now, we know Scripture teaches very clearly that we have no reason to boast on the last day. We, everything will be said, well, it's God who did it all, right? So what's Paul saying here? Well, once again, we need to understand the primary mission of Jesus back in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11. Jesus' primary mission was to the glory of God the Father. Now, we get the benefit when he saves us. And he comes to reconcile us to his father, because that's what his father will, but his primary motivator is to glorify his Father in heaven. Jesus' primary motivator was his father's glory. And that is also Paul's primary motivator, and it should be ours as well. It's good to love one another, but you cannot have a people-centered purpose. You need to have a Christ-centered purpose. You need to think of that day when you live in this life. You need to think of Jesus' words, well done, good, and faithful servant, when you live in the present among one another. You need to have an eternal perspective for how you treat one another. You need to have the gospel and God's glory at heart in your concerns when you consider the dark world around you. Because if you have a people-centered theology, you will drift with the culture. And when there are things that need to be said that are hard in the culture, you may not want to say them in order to win people. But sometimes you'll be the only person standing up for the truth amidst everyone that calls you a bigot or calls you a hater or calls you whatever they want to call you because you are telling them that there is a judgment day coming and on that day God is going to judge all the world and those who are outside of Christ will be lost forever. When you tell people that, people will call you a hater, that you're a bigot, that you are narrow-minded.
1: But you know what? If you have the vision
0: that God's glory on that day, that day, I will see Christ. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. In that day, if in that day, if you run for that day, you will say those hard things in the culture. Now, you've got to do it with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter. You've got to strive to live at peace with all men. We're not saying that you need to be out there thumping people. You need to be winsome. But you need to speak the truth. You need to speak the truth. And Paul here has that day Mind. Yeah, he loves this church. I mean, he sees that right throughout the letter. He writes to this church how much he loves them and cares for them for their partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until last. He prays for them. He is thankful to God for them. But guess what? At the end of the day, Paul's primary motivator is the glory of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what we should live for. And that's how Paul deals with his imprisonment. And possible execution. That's where he gets to in the final verse, verse 17. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See here, Paul returns to one of the central themes of this letter, the theme of rejoicing. Rejoicing. Look what he's rejoicing in,
1: his execution. this is crazy. And then he's telling the church to rejoice with them.
0: Why? Wow. Well, he is using the language of religious sacrifices. Once again, whether it's drawn from the Old Testament or drawn from the daily sacrificial events or in Philippa, he's using imagery that they would understand, and the language here is sacrifice. Paul sees his execution, for possible execution at Rome, as a sacrif- sacrificial offering upon the altar of their faith to God's glory. And this is why Paul rejoices. It's for the gospel that he is there. He's not there for wrongdoing. He's not there for trying to overthrow Rome. He's not there for insurrection, he's there for loving people by speaking the truth, telling them that the Caesar that they call Lord and burn incense to and have altars for is not the true Lord of the world, and they're going to go to hell for that. But the true Lord is Jesus, and he's come to save people, and everyone that he saves will become citizens of heaven and enjoy the eternal peace of God and the eternal rest of God. Paul's in prison for that gospel. And he says, this is a sacrificial offering for your faith, and I rejoice in that. If I will die for this purpose, in this I rejoice. I did no one any wrong. And so here Paul's motivation is the furtherance of the gospel to the glory of God,
1: even at the cost of his own life. Why? Because Paul's living for that day. That day.
0: And as his, if his life would end in the pursuit of God's glory to the good of all people, that is, his life being offered up as a pleasing sacrifice, then he will rejoice, and so should we. This is, of, of course, what Paul has already said in one, chapter 1, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Is that your heartbeat?
1: You see, this is the attitude of a person who lives not for
0: this moment only,
1: but for that day. The culture wants to tell you to live for this moment. This moment,
0: here and now. Paul says, live for that day. And that means living sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel to the glory of God and the good of others. And guess what? We do that as a community. Which is where Paul began the section. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So whether I come to see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel.
1: We do this together.
0: And then Paul adds this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, i.e. for the glory of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, either for the furtherance of the gospel. And this is why it is absolutely crucial that Christians live as obedient children of God, so that we will shine the light of God's glory into a dark world as we live sacrificially, for the furtherance of the gospel of Christ
1: that day. So I want to ask you as we conclude, can you imagine Christmas without lights? (laughs) Imagine that. Or what about Christmas without Christ? We can imagine that. That's very prevalent. What about a world without a church? John reported, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
0: The light continues to shine through every local church that lives obedient lives as the children of God in a dark world.
1: And this mandate, this purpose, is given to us to fulfill. This is our job.
0: So as we conclude this Advent Sunday and we approach Christmas morning, I want you to go out and enjoy all the beautiful lights. I love this time of year. You know, hey, I've been looking forward to this time of year coming to America, and now we're up here where it snows, a white Christmas, and guess what? There's no snow on the radar. I want my money back. (laughs) Right? I mean, I come from... You know, 90, 100 degree weather down south in South Africa. We don't, you know, everything is advertised in the white Christmas, American dream Christmas. So now I'm here, I want that. But we've had that. We went and had a Christmas lighting service, a uh, Christmas lighting event at, um, in Zealand and it was snowing that night. Oh, it was beautiful, you know. But I want you to go and look at those lights and let it be a reminder to you what the church is. When you go out and you enjoy this the beauty of the season. Don't just reflect on Santa Claus and presence. And I want you to look at all those lights individually. Say, that is an individual local church preaching the gospel, living the gospel, right there, reflected in all the world. Because that's what Advent's all about. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice and the glory of the light of Christ. May we shine his glory in the world by being obedient to your commission. In Jesus' name, amen.